Good morning. How we doing? You guys sound like you're not fully caffeinated yet. You guys fully caffeinated yet? I know I am. I was up at about 0400 this morning going over my notes. Uh, around 6 o'clock, I decided that I would head on over to Wegmans, grab some donuts for the youth team. And, uh, you know, while I was there, I figured I'd do a little bit of shopping, right? I grabbed a little bit of coffee and, and whatever else. I happened to come across this, this can about yay high that had, uh, had some skull and crossbones on it. And it said, like, death by coffee. And I, it was intriguing. I'm like, I turn it over and I look, and it's zero sugar and 15 uh, calories and whatever else. And so I've had that, so I am awake. <laughs> I assure you. Um, Thanks for coming today. Um, happy New Year to you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Just, just say it. Let it roll off your tongue. Happy New Year. Isn't it great to start 2020? You guys, uh, hopefully you guys had a great uh, Christmas and a great New Year's. Had a chance to kind of uh, maybe relax, get with uh, friends and family over the, the holiday season there. And a chance to kind of recharge your batteries if you did that. That's amazing. And so uh, today... Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Scripture, and we're going to talk a little bit about this thing that I called, or entitled, uh, A New Life with Old Changes. Um, it's going to be out of the book of Colossians, uh, specifically Colossians 3, 1 through 17, is we're going to spend our time today. And I wanted to get started by saying that in 2019, uh, Jean conducted a survey um, in New Year's resolutions. Uh, it broke the survey into states and recorded some interesting data. In addition to collecting the most popular targets for Americans, it also recorded by state which ones were successful and which ones were not. Uh, Along with exercise, weight loss, and saving money at the top, the hardest of these to keep was was food-related. The study also revealed that 85%, think about this for a second, 85% of the resolutions were forfeited within six months to one year. Now, I don't know if we have a picture. I try to get this thing. Jason's done a great job to try to, to make this fit. But if you can see, this is all the breakdown. Uh, Virginia is in there, and Virginia uh, falls under the category of 35%. So we were actually not too bad in keeping our New Year's resolutions. Uh, and that had all to do with the fact of, of trying to lose weight, doing, doing, trying to be a little bit better. Uh, I had another photo up here. Go to the next one, Jason. Yeah, there you go. I love memes. I'm a, I'm a meme fanatic, right? Uh, this is up here for two reasons. Number one, this is for my sister-in-law because she is Kermit the Frog's number one fan. Okay? Kermit the Frog is her hero, right? But this also is up here just kind of as a reminder for me to look at it, and, and it says, I'll call you back when I, I, I want to laugh at everyone else's New Year's resolutions. It's gotten to that point, hasn't it, at, at certain points that some of our New Year's resolutions are kind of funny. You know, we set these expectations that we're going to be able to do certain things, and then when we don't achieve them, it just becomes laughable. It's just, eh, we're not able to achieve it. And I think part of that problem comes with an unrealistic expectation. I think we put too much stress on ourselves to try to better ourselves at times. Would you agree? That there are times that we put these, these listings of things that we want to do in order to improve self. That's, that's what we want to do. But it, it turns out at some time, that at some points, that it's, it's unrealistic. And so what do we wind up doing from six months to a year? And this is pretty much what the survey said, was that we just wind up saying forget about it and we move forward. Have you ever been disappointed with some of the choices that you've made? Have you ever, have you ever even tried to maybe you get a little frustrated with yourself that you're, you yourself are not able to, to meet the standards that you set for yourself? 
Maybe you're disappointed in some of the resolutions. Um, but if you are, I'm here to tell you today that in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, we're going to take a look at some of the answers uh, that, that the Scripture has for us as we go into 2020. In the text, you'll be reminded of who we are as Christian living in this new year. We'll see what drives some of those choices. And finally, what we can do in order to live out that calling. So if you're anything like me and you're standing at the threshold of a new year, a couple thoughts and a couple questions have probably already come to mind. Some of us in here are probably relieved that we have kind of gotten past 2019. If you're in here, you can go ahead and raise your hand. If, you're, if you are done with 2019 and ready to look forward to 2020, raise your hand. Okay, good. I'm one of those people. I'm ready to close the door and move forward. But some of us are, are, are also uh, asking the question, you know, where did that year go? You know, the little older that we get, we, we see time kind of fly. We all can agree on one thing, that as we look back and as we stand at the threshold, at the doorpost of 2020, and we look back at what happened the year prior, we can all agree that we want to move forward in a positive way. And so at the end or beginning of this year provides us with an opportunity to kind of level set. We tend to immerse ourselves in what we do, and we need to, a chance to kind of pause, to, to, to almost to take a look around, to reevaluate. And so I pray that this is an opportunity, that this message today will be an opportunity for you to kind of level set, catch your breath, pause, do a self-check, and continue to step into 2020. So let me give you a little bit of background on the text. Okay, Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey, is located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and the city of Colossae was a Greco uh, city that was a, had a Roman pro, uh, proconsular uh, known as an Asia Minor. Okay, it was one of the three cities tucked in the Lycus Valley, should be up here on the screen, right, which followed the major trade routes between the east and the west. Now, at one point, Colossae used to be a large, well-populated area, okay? The city uh, boasts all kinds of trade, but at this point in time, when Paul's writing this, the city is a little bit, has shrunk a little bit. I don't, I don't know why. I have no, the Bible's not clear as to why that, that is. All we know is that it is. Even though it was small, Colossae still was a cosmopolitan town buzzing with different kinds of cultures and religions. It was populated with mostly Gentiles, uh, with a considerable amount of Jew inhabitants scattered amongst the city. The major trade, if you look on this map where it's located, is up in the mountains, okay? The major trade and source of income was wool. You think about it, when you're in that, in that time, that's what they traded what they had. Wool was one of those, those, those trade commodities that they used, and as they went east to west and whatnot, uh, was used to sell, and we know this because we, in the book of Acts, okay, we remember a woman, anybody remember Lydia, of Thyra, uh, what is it, Thyatira, okay, the, the woman, okay, Lydia, was said that she would spin these, uh, these, this wool into purple cloth, okay, and so this idea of purple cloth that she would sell uh, was wool that was taken that was then spun into yarn that was then made into clothing. Purple is what they used to dye from mullet shells, Okay, would dye this, and that was used for royalty. Purple was a royal, royal color. This was a big business. This was the equivalent of a government contract for Lydia. Okay, Lydia was, was not small potatoes. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the, you know, the background with, with what she had done. In addition, the Church of Colossae was most likely not established by Paul directly. Rather, the scriptures indicate that it was Epaphras, who Paul called our beloved bondservant, who was faithful servant in Christ, on our behalf. It was Epaphras that started the church there. So Epaphras is Paul's, how can I say, uh, one of Paul's guys, okay? He was a, a citizen there, 
right? And so he knew the teachings of, of, of Paul. He knew, he knew about Christ. And so Epaphras opens this church. He launches this church. And so Epaphras visits Paul in jail to basically bring him up to speed. And that is the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians basically opens up by, by Paul giving thanks and praises to God for the purposes of being allowed to uh, write to these people. But he also is saying that, you know, there are some issues that are going on, right? Epaphras is, is delivering the news of the struggles that the, the new Christians that are there are struggling with. There's, they're, they're, the reasons why he'd written this was to refute heretical teaching, okay? The teachings were, were striking at the core of Christianity in itself. You know, you got to remember, this was an, a time where Rome was in there and Greece was in there. They had all kinds of, of idols that were, that were competing for the attention of Christ. And so that's one. The, uh, to encourage the church is another reason why Paul had written this, to address the challenges, okay, that Epaphras had risen, and then to challenge them into greater devotion with Jesus. Those are the three reasons, to refute heretical teaching, to encourage the church, and to challenge them into a greater devotion with Christ. And so Paul's in jail. And that's where we're going to land our feet today, okay? Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Look with me. If you don't have your Bibles, I got up on the screen for you to follow. Since then, you've been raised in Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when you also would appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator." Here there are no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which, blinds, which, excuse me, which binds all of them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since the members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful, letting the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, excuse me, with, with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father, God the Father, through him. Amen. Main point one, verses one through four. Remember who you are. Paul starts off by saying, since then, when you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts above thing, things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on these things and not earthly things. Paul begins this section where he focuses on practical Christian living. And as such, practical Christian living is built on a foundation, a theological foundation of truth, which starts with since then. Earlier in this letter, Paul begins this argument of this theological uh, foundation. He starts to build this. If we were to go back and look at, uh, at Colossians 2, uh, verses 11 through 12, he starts to, to create this foundation where he's going to make this argument on this Christian living that he's talking about in 3. So in Colossians, look with me if you will, Colossians uh, uh, 2, 11b through 12, it said the whole, 
Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you're circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God, who has raised him from the dead. He's saying that through baptism into Christ. Now, this is not physical baptism, guys. Not physical baptism. This is baptism of the Spirit. Okay? So baptism of the Spirit. Uh, we have died and been buried and raised with him through faith. Paul's arguing is saying that because you believed, you have been baptized by the Spirit. He argues in this section that Colossians don't need to add anything in Christ. In fact, the full deity of Christ, listen to me say this, the full deity of Christ dwells within those who have been buried in Christ and who have been raised in Christ. And through this regeneration process, we gain a helper, the Spirit, which is also, but there's also expectations when we receive the Spirit. I want to make sure that we get that clear. One of the functions of the Spirit is to keep us from destroying our lives. It's almost to think of it as like a, like an accountability, uh, accountability partner, right? Almost like, a, uh, almost like an airbag, okay, for those of you who like cars, right? Uh, the Spirit acts in a similar manner when we walk through this life, okay? We're reminded about, the things, uh, about some of the things that we do that can potentially harm us by the Spirit's uh, leading and guiding us. And, but it's funny, however, that ha- we have the ability to disable our safety partner, don't we? How many times have you, through your actions, through your choices, have disabled the Spirit in your life? I think some of us would, it's fair to say, that we've, we've done this without even our knowing. That we've made choices in our lives that, that the Spirit just kind of pulls back and says, you know what, I'm not going to have any part of that right now. And then we need to get ourselves back on track. And that's what Paul's warning the, the Christians in Colossae right now. He's telling them to watch out. That they've already been influenced by a polytheistic environment. Right? Remember what we said with the, with the Romans and with the Greeks, with the influence from them? That's what they were doing. They were, they were trying to take this idea of how to get to heaven, how to get into a relationship, how to get you know, closer to God. And they were, they were putting their own spin on things. And what Paul's arguing in the very beginning is like, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Okay? You are, you are in Christ. That means you belong to Christ. So he encourages them and reminds them who they are. Look with me in verse 2. Paul says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not earthly things. In other words, ignore what you're hearing, what these people are saying, and stay focused. Don't let the influence of the culture lead you away, because you know what the truth is. And as you live out this life for Jesus, be on the guard. Remember, these people are very impressionable. Let's stop right there and think about this. They were young in the faith. They'd just gotten saved. They're new Christians in Christ. They're, they're, they're feeding off of, of spiritual milk, so to speak. And so they have this, this culture that's surrounding them and being pulled from different sides. You, on one side, you have uh, the Romans and you have the Greeks that are saying, you know, if you, you do this, this polytheistic uh, approach to getting to heaven. And then you have the Jews on the other side that are pulling at them saying, you got to follow the law. And so they don't know what to do. They're having a real hard time just trying to make sense of, well, what do I do? And so they get a little frustrated in allowing those influences to kind of uh, uh, impact their decision. And just imagine if you were a Christian back in those days. Okay, you, you show up to church. Um, you may be wavering your faith. You make a decision from Christ. You get pulled away from your faith and allow the influences of others to, to convince you to get off track with Christ. Thank goodness none of us in here had that happen. 
not very good at it. Actually, I'm okay. I'm fluent. That's, that's my primary language. <laughs> so Paul's warning them, okay? That's what he's doing here. Paul's warning them not to set their affections on whatever would hinder them from running the race that's been set out for them. Why? Verse 3 will answer that. He says, For you died and your life is now hidden, concealed. It's safe with Christ. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. He continues to remind them, you died to your old self. You, you, you were dead. You're no longer you. Time out, guys. You were dead. You died. You're not yourself. All this extra ceremonial hoopla that we're adding to it in this law isn't for you anymore. It doesn't apply to you. This is what his argument is. He's really arguing that your life, this identity that you found in this relationship as Christ is not keeping you, it, it has no bearing on your life whatsoever. Paul's saying that you died and your identity is, is concealed. It's safe. And Christ took up that debt and paid that balance. And because your identity is sealed and safe, one day you will be glorified with him. Stay on track. Remember who you are. That's the message of this, this first part, of, this first, of these first main points. The language here is pointing to the future. Paul speaks of the, of the, rat, uh, the rapture. Let me, let me help you with this. As Paul sits in his cell, he, he has some thoughts. He's thinking about his calling. He's thinking about um, how he's going to continue to work as he's on the inside. And some of his letters, primarily uh, uh, Galatians, okay, were written very close uh, to one another. Remember, Paul's in jail for doing what? Why is Paul in jail? This is, one of the, this is one of the times that he's in there. Why is he there? He's there because of the fact that he claimed who Jesus was. He made a, pro, a, a declaration. He stood out and said, this is who Christ is, and I'm following Christ. And they can't have that. And so the Romans are like, you know what? That's it. You're in jail, man. And that's what they did. And so he's writing these letters, and he's pulling from influences from Galatian, from Thessalonians, as he pens this at the same time. And so as, as Paul's sitting there and locked up, he's receiving updates. Okay, he's getting updates uh, as he continues his work. He's writing to the different churches and encouraging them. The Bible isn't 100% clear and exact exactly what the message was. And I think about this as I was putting this together. You remember when, when Paul met Jesus on the road? Everybody remember that? Okay. The Bible's pretty clear about that meeting. It's not clear on what Paul saw. So my argument is simply this. We don't know what Paul saw. We don't know what drove Paul. We know that Paul was, was very much uh, a, a certain way uh, to, and, and for, I'm trying to think of the, the right words to use here. He, he had a lot of zeal, okay, for who he was as a, as, 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 as a person, right? And, and what he's doing at this point is he's, he's really just making that argument, just going, hey, listen, um, this is what I need you guys to understand. You need to embrace this idea of, who you guys are in Christ. you you got to get this. And so he's writing this, right? And I would argue that Paul is probably writing this letter uh, from a heart of conviction and truth. Uh, he's recalling the importance of Christ as he uses his own experience to help others. And as he talks about the rapture, I want you to pay attention to this. Uh, look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through, through 18. This is what Paul is, is, is uh, arguing here. For the Lord himself is descended from heaven with a loud shout and command from the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, will be snatched away at the same time together with them in the clouds of the meeting with the Lord in the air. And thus we will be together with the Lord always. Therefore comfort one another by these words. Paul is making the argument for those who have trusted Jesus through death, burial, and resurrection will be raised with him. And because this is so, because this is true, 
You are to set your hearts and minds on the truth of who Jesus is. That's Paul's argument in this first part. For if you are found in him, then you will be like him, glorified. Main point two, take off your old self. Take off your old self. But Paul says before this happens, you'll be well to do a self-diagnostic check. Okay? He says before you become glorified, there, there are a few warning lights okay, that have been going off, that have been flashing, that you need to be aware of uh, before you uh, can be glorified. Uh, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greeds, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of such things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self and its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the Creator. Here there is no Gentile Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but in Christ is all and in all. What I find most interesting is the choice of language that Paul uses. When he describes this putting off of old self, I think the, the translation as it goes into English misses, misses the severity of it. And what I mean by that is the translation tense is kill it, destroy it, do not let it rain. I mean absolutely obliterate this in your life. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Well, you're no longer earthly beings. You're, you're in Christ, so you can't be. But we still have that, that struggle, right? Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. And so Paul's reminding him here, put it to death. Funny thing that this is written around, around 60 AD, um, and it still applies today, doesn't it? It absolutely applies to us today. Of course, God uh, has already done this, but the Christians don't know, and they're, and they're still trying to just live it out. So Paul says, just kill it. And why? This runs counter to things above. Your behavior, when you become a, well, after you become a Christian, if you continue to act like your old self, really is doing one thing. It's not revealing who you truly are in Christ. And that's Paul's point. You're not these people. You are not this person who uh, has, has these issues. I don't view you as like, this is what he's saying. He's saying, like, listen, you're not that person. You're not who you say you are. You're in Christ. And he's trying to convince him. So when we resurrect our past, and we can do this from time to time, church. We do this on a regular basis. We were just talking about this in group. When we resurrect our past, when we take a look backwards into 2019 and see the things that we've done that we're not proud of, and all of us here have done those, including myself, and especially me, especially me. We can tend to take a long look at things, get caught up in that, and the enemy will use that in order to keep you from moving forward. You ever notice that? You ever notice that when you have a, something that you've struggled with for some time, and you've gone to the Lord and you said, Lord, please take this from me. Take this away from me. I want, I'm, I'm begging you. I, I can't take it anymore. And he removes it. And then what do we do? We go fishing for it. And then we catch it, and then we look at it. And the Lord's going, cut the line, man. You don't need to do that. You're a new creature. You're a new creature in Christ, man. You don't need to do that. But we do that to ourselves. And why is that such a problem? That's a problem because as you start to look at your old self, when you start to be reminded of your old self, what does that do? Your mind starts to go. 
and you start to doubt or can doubt, and I know there are people sitting in here, and I'm one of them, that has doubted your salvation. You doubt your salvation because your wheels start turning, and that's all the enemy does. He doesn't paint in these huge brush strokes. Rarely will you see him ever operate in a manner where it's like, holy smokes, it's the enemy, run. It's subtle. Reminding you of something that you used to do with something that's right there before you. Using other people in your past to bring up stuff in your future to disrupt you. And then your mind starts thinking of these things. And then your mind starts going because we're like hamsters on a hamster wheel. And then by that time, guess what happens? Now I'm starting to question my salvation. And once I start to question my salvation, then what do I say? Forget church. Forget Christ. This is too hard. And I'm going to rewrite my New Year's resolution. I can't do it. Paul says, kill it. Put it to death. How? Why? How do I put my old self to death? What do I need to work out of my salvation? I'm going to answer that question by saying this. Salvation, I want you to hear me say this. If there's anything that you hear, apart from the jokes, that you take home is this. Salvation is not what it seems to be. And what I mean by that is this. Salvation is not just cut and dry. I am nervous when I see Christians or preachers or pastors or people that are influenced that can simply explain salvation like it's one thing, it's like one and done, that's it. No. Salvation happens in three parts, three stages with the argument. N.T. Wright uh, argues that uh, salvation or being called righteous in God's sight, being made right, happens at the end of your life. Follow me on this one, church. Salvation has happened before, right? Christ died making it possible for you to be saved. In the middle portion, which is what we're talking about, that Pastor Nick has stood up here time and time again and argued, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the part I'm talking about right now. Your works. Not sitting on your hands. You have a part in this too, okay? You're doing this together with Christ. You know what you're doing? You're, you're spending time with your New Year's resolution and trying to find out ways that you can be a better Christian and, and work towards your salvation. Why? So then at the end of your life, at the end of your life, God will stand there, you'll be with Christ, and Christ can point back and say, this is why this person is righteous, because of the works. It's proof that you're righteous. Three stages. It's not one and done. Why does this matter? Verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's why this is so important. Paul's referring to the judgment that is already underway for God's plan. Um, his plan to, to deal with evil is already taken off. He says that because of this, I will judge the quick and the dead. So let me ask you this, church. Anyone know when Christ is coming back? Facebook, Facebook knows. I've got to figure out how to turn this off. <laughs> Some people claim they know when Christ is coming back. I tell you right now, the scripture says otherwise. No one knows when he's coming back. So here's my question. How do you want to be when he comes back? ready. Do you want to be caught up in some of the things that you're trying to get rid of? Or do you want to be ready? ready. Okay. He continues, verse 7 and 8, you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, and put in a couple other things that personally identify with who you are. Paul says these dirty clothes that you've worn are no longer fitting to those who call themselves Christians. 
They're repulsive. The attitude of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language don't fit the Christian. And then you have to ask yourself, Paul, is that it? Nope, there's more. Hang on. Verse 10 and nine, uh, excuse me, 9 and 10. Do not lie to each other, Paul continues, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have to put, them on, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Paul's saying in order for us to run this race, you know, the one that he's laid out for you, if you want to finish this race successfully, you'll need to lose some of the bad habits. In order for you to cross the finish line, you'll need to be transformed by the renewing of your heart and what? Mind. That's where true change comes from, church. From inside, not outside. You could change everything outside and convince the next person they're none the wiser. But if true change doesn't happen in your heart and your mind, forget it. You're not doing anything. Focus on killing these areas in your life. When you do this, pay attention. When you do this, the moral and intellectual image, the moral and intellectual image of the Imago Dei, that is the image of God. Remember the image of God in Genesis? What happened in the fall? Genesis 3. Okay? We messed up, right? Remember that? We messed up. We sinned. We got, we got what we deserve. We got our punishment. And our image of God was marred. It was deformed. Paul's argument here, what I'm trying to get through is this. When you throw these things off and you take on and put on the new self, you are mirroring God the right way, the correct way. It's restored. And it is being renewed back to the image of the creator from which it was intended. It's being restored. And I ask the question, who's this for? I love this. I love this when I came across this. What if I'm not a Christian? Who is this for? Verse 11 answers it. Pay attention. Here, okay, is what Paul says. In this new image, in this new life, there is no division, no Gentile, no Jew, uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in all and is in all. Meaning, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone, anyone, I looked that up in the Greek, I looked that up in the Hebrew, you know what anyone means? Anyone is in Christ. He or she is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all these things are, are from God who has reconciled us to himself. And that's through Christ. And who gives us the ministry of reconciliation. <laughs> You say, what things? What, what does that mean? I don't understand. What things? Folks, all the barriers are destroyed in Christ. And all the believers are truly created equal. So it is to be expected that each believer, regardless of his or her nationality, form of religion, culture, economic standing, should do away of former sins and practices and should live in accordance with his or her new self. That's what Paul's saying. Namely, Paul is advocating that those who claim to be in Christ should put on this new attitude with new actions. Listen, as you stand before this new year and your new identity in Christ, Paul's arguing it's about time to remember who you are and start acting like it. Act like it. Main point three, live out who you are. Live out who you are. 
Well, I, I don't understand. I, how, how can I live out who I am? I don't know. What's my calling? Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Put on the clothes of what, Paul? Compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And patience. Again, Paul calls those who have been afforded the right to call themselves the children of God to make a decision to clothe yourselves with your new identity. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentle, patience. Sounds an awful lot like the fruits of the Spirit, which also sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Get rid of the old clothes. Clothe yourselves with the new. For some of us, compassion or being gentle or even forgiving, as the Lord has forgiven us, can be a challenge. I'm one who is not a patient individual. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. No, I'm not. You're absolutely right. But that's what Paul's arguing here. That's what he wants for us. That's what the Lord wants from us. Paul tries to pull it all together. In fact, he does by explaining that he makes all of this work. He gets uh, the the one virtue that that the law is written on that sums up the Christian life is that all makes sense in verse 14. Look with me. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all in perfect unity. Love for who, you may ask? Love for yourself. Love for your brothers. Love for your sisters. For anyone. For that's what the law hangs on, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second one, second commandment's like the other one. To love others. Just so you love yourself, right? If you're looking to sum up Jesus in one word, what would it be? That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying if, if you've chosen just one, if you struggle with all the rest, choose to reveal in Christ in 2020 by showing his love, love for one another, love for those who bear his image. Can I have the band and the ushers come up, please? And then Paul does something. He closes this section out by saying simply this. I love this part. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called into peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. With all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, as we stand at the doorposts of a new year, each of us is eager to learn what's ahead of us. Many of us see hope. Some of us are uncertain. But let me encourage you and challenge you as Paul did with this message. In 2020, or until Christ returns, you will continually have to take off your old self. You will. And I don't care how much of a righteous person you may think you are. This is something that you're going to have to do on a regular basis. I don't know if Christ is your personal Savior. Let me invite you to join us uh, next, what is it, next uh, Wednesday with our our groups we're doing? Right, Uh, with our community groups that meet uh, just before, just before service at 9.30 Sunday. 
If you're struggling with questions about faith or you just need prayer, meet up with us on Sunday at 9.30 in the community groups. Maybe, just maybe, we'd be wise enough to replace what brings us comfort for what prepares us to meet him in our New Year's resolutions. Would you consider doing that this year? Adding resolutions that have eternal purpose rather than temporal meaning? I'll close with how Jesus viewed the importance of internal change. One that, if we're not careful, can hinder our walk. And the Bible says this as he was rebuking the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He, he warned them multiple times. In fact, it was five or six woes that he had given them. He said in Matthew 25, 25 to 28, Woe to you, teach to the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean, listen, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In 2020, before you start to launch into that, before you, before 2020 unravels itself to you. I challenge you, like Paul, to remember who you are in Christ. If you find yourself, and do a self-examination, as my brother Eric last week preached on, if you find yourself with any of these, these problems, these issues, these hindrances, that are, that are like weights as you run this race that's set before you, I implore you, Meet with us in community group. Shut them off. Take them off completely. Take off your old clothes and put on the new clothes in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank you for this message. I want to thank you above all things, Lord, for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for making it possible, for making it possible for us to come to you, Lord, and accept you as Lord and Savior. As 2020 is right in front of us, we have no idea what you have in store for us. But one thing I do know, Lord, is that I can look back at 2019 and 2018 and 2017 and beyond and know that you are faithful. I know that I can count on you, Lord, that I'm looking to you to be a light to my feet and lamp in my path, Lord. I know for sure that you're going to be there. I just ask, Lord, that you give us the strength and the courage to do that and do that, uh, do that well. And we, if we do stumble, and we will stumble, Lord, just forgive us. We are really trying just to, just to please you. We give you thanks and praises in the name of your Son, in the name of Jesus Christ, and through your power, your Spirit. Amen.